0: Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. If you have a Bible, open it with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter... Six And and what we're talking about today is, is what does it look like to be marked by Jesus as one of his followers, as someone who is living for him and serving him with our lives. That's the calling of every Christian, right? Every Christian is called to be on mission and to live for Jesus. If you're unaware of that, I hope that's not breaking news for you, but that's your calling. After you trust him as your savior, you are now in the army of people who are making him known to the world. The question is, is how do you do that? And I know that a lot of us feel um, maybe inadequate. Uh, We feel just a sense of not being worthy or not being prepared to do that. And so this morning it's gonna be really helpful because Jesus is actually gonna show us some on the job training uh, that he did with his disciples that I think is very applicable for us as his followers as well. Um, So one of my favorite jobs that I ever had, um, I was in high school actually, and me and my best friend, we, um, we worked at our high school during the summer, and we were the maintenance help. I guess if, if we had an official title, that's what it would be. Basically, uh, anything that everybody else didn't want to do, that's what we had to do that summer. So mowing and moving teachers' stuff and just all kinds of stuff. The stuff I really remember about the job is endless amounts of Dr. Pepper from the concession stands. That was awesome. Uh, we had this old farm truck that we called Old Blue. Uh, that it was a manual transmission, but you didn't even need to use the clutch to shift gears. You just slammed it into gear, and off it went. It was awesome, right? So we drove that thing like we stole it all summer. And then I remember killing snakes. We would do that uh, a lot, especially if our boss, our superintendent, told us to go mow the uh, goon, is what we called the lagoon. It was a nasty, stinky area that we didn't want to go mow that. But we knew where there was a nest of rat snakes, and our superintendent was super terrified of snakes. And so we would go kill a couple of snakes, take it to his office, and be like, look, man, it's infested. And he would say, yeah, just go do something else, you know. So we'd get out of it that way. So that was our job. And I remember the first day on the job, um, they gave us some on-the-job training. We were told to show up at the maintenance barn and meet with this guy. I still don't even know his real name, but everybody just called him Red, right? And he was in charge of all things maintenance, and he fit the part, like he looked the part, he fit the part, he knew all things maintenance at the school, and he gave us some, some training. He loaded us in the truck, we drove around the campus, and he, he gave us tips and pointers, also a lot of warnings, things not to do, right? He gave us both of those, and then he took us back to the maintenance barn, and he showed us the mowers, and the mowers were, uh, they're zero-turn mowers, if you know what that is, right? So if you're, if you're unaware, a zero-turn mower does not have a steering wheel. It has two levers, and uh, they control each tire independently. And so you can do a circle, just like 360. It's pretty awesome, but the first time you try and drive one of those, it's a rodeo, right? And so he told us all about the mowers, how to put gas in it, how to grease all the points, and all that kind of stuff. And then he said, all right, pick a mower and get on it. And me and my buddy were like, wait, you talking to us? Because we've never done that before. He said, yep, get on one and follow me. And so we go out the maintenance barn, and we're just, you know, all over the place, and then bucking us off, and it was pretty wild, but he, uh, he took us out, and he set up these cones as, like, this obstacle course type thing, and we had to learn to maneuver these mowers in and out of these cones and go around in a circle, and at one point, he had us, like, line up across from each other like we were jousting each other, and he wanted us to drive beside each other, and I just thought, this dude is crazy, you know, but that was our training, and uh, I guess it worked. By the end of summer, we were able to, like, mow pictures into the grass for the airplanes, I guess, to look at and write our name in the fields and stuff like that. So that was our on-the-job training. Um, this morning in our text, Jesus is going to give some on-the-job training to his disciples, like I said, and and it's very um, applicable for us and how we are to live on mission for him. This is a very familiar story in Mark chapter 6. Like, you're gonna know it. Uh, you, you heard it, and, and kids Sunday school growing up I'm sure it's the feeding of the 5,000 that's that's the story it's the most famous of Jesus's miracles probably outside of the resurrection it's the only miracle again outside of the resurrection that's in all four of the gospel accounts so it's a big deal obviously right Um, and I know that we typically think of it as wow look at that amazing thing that Jesus did to feed all of those people and it was an amazing thing that he did to feed all those people But I think it was more a miracle to teach his 12 disciples, and that's what I want to show you and talk about this morning, this on-the-job training that Jesus does. Before we read the text, I'd love for us to pray and ask the Lord just to speak to us this morning. So I'll pray for all of us. You pray for yourself and ask the Lord to speak. God, would you use this time and just speak to our hearts in a way that only you can? Through the Spirit and through your Word, would you illuminate the text, help us to see what it is that you're teaching us, and, and, and maybe more importantly, as we leave these doors, would you help us to actually do it? We love you. We're listening. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter six, start in verse 30 with me. It says, "'The apostles gathered around Jesus "'and reported to him all that they had done and taught. "'He said to them, "'Come away by yourselves to a remote place "'and rest for a while.'" For many people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how Jesus is a rock star at this moment. He's drawing a crowd everywhere that he goes. And that is certainly the case here. Jesus is drawing a crowd. Verse 32. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place, but many saw them leaving and recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore... He, Jesus, saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it is already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. Verse 37, Jesus says, you, give them something to eat. He responded, They said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? He asked asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. That's a crazy story, isn't it? And I know that you've heard it. Like I said, it's a very popular miracle of Jesus outside of his resurrection, probably the most popular of Jesus. But again, it's the only miracle outside of the resurrection that is in all four of the gospels. It's almost like whenever Jesus died and he rose again and he ascended into heaven and he commissioned his disciples to go out and they're preaching and they're starting churches and all that and then they say, you know what, we need to write some of this down and they begin to write these gospel books that we now have in our Bible. Every single one of them looked back to this moment of this 5,000 people sitting outside eating the bread and the fish and they thought, that is a pivotal moment in our ministry journey. That's a hinge point. That's important, right? All four of them put that down in the book for us. And so I think it's teaching us, how do we live on mission? You and I, today, right here in central Arkansas, how do we do this? I think there's four things I want to show you out of this text that that show us how we are to live on mission. Number one, if we're going to live for Christ, number one, you've got to see your need. See your need. Verse 30, it starts by saying, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. What is that talking about? So, so Jesus, it, 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 Mark shows us that the disciples come, and it says that they sit down, and they start to explain all the things that they had just done. What is that? Well, if you back up in Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 13, you're going to see that Jesus pairs up his disciples, and he sends them out two by two on like the world's first mission trip to go preach, and teach, and heal people, and cast out demons. Basically do everything that Jesus had done right that's what that's what they had just gone out to do and then verse 30 says they show back up and they're excited to tell all the news this is like if you've ever gone on a mission trip or maybe even to student camp or something like that and you come home and you're excited to talk about it you know like look at all that the Lord did on this trip look at all that he did at camp and you're excited to tell somebody about it but you're also exhausted aren't you I can't remember going to student camp as a student, and uh, you come home, you're excited. The Lord really moved all week long, but there's no nap in the world like that post-summer camp nap. You know what I'm talking about? You're excited, you're exhausted, and that's how these guys are feeling. They've just been out. They've been going two by two, preaching and teaching and doing a lot of work for the Lord, but they are tired. That's the reason Jesus says in verse 31, he says, come away by yourself to a remote place and rest for a while come rest. You've been working, come rest. I think it's important for us to hear this morning that you have a real need for rest. And maybe that's good for some of you to hear. Maybe you're a workaholic or or you just, you're always busy with something. Maybe you need to hear that it is good. It's actually a command from God for you to rest. Did you know that? It's a thing that he put in place called the Sabbath. It's It's a weekly rhythm that God establishes in our life To pull away and rest. See, I think think we can fall on two extremes on this topic of rest. Some of us, um, we are workaholics and we never rest. Others use this idea of rest as like an excuse for laziness or an excuse just to quit working altogether for the Lord, you know. But I want you to notice in this passage, Jesus says, rest for a while. (laughs) This isn't a permanent rest. There's still work to be done. There's still work that he's calling you to do, but he says it is good for you to rest for a while. Why why is rest important? Well, God instilled the Sabbath and He tells us to rest. He tells His disciples to rest here. Because rest is a reminder for us. It's a reminder of your limitations and your need for God. That rest is a time to pull away and remember that He's God and you're not. <laughs> that that you have limitations. If you just keep going all the time, you will run out of gas. You will burn out. It's also a reminder that, that, uh, that your work is not your identity. It's not your worth. You rest and you rely on, on Jesus. Your work isn't the thing that identifies you. Also, the work that you're doing, even if it's good work, even if it's ministry work, is not the most important thing in your life. Like, I need to put those things aside, even the good things that I'm talking about here, even ministry, even preaching, to rest in Jesus. If you're constantly just working for him and you're never spending time to rest in him, you're not gonna be any good to anybody for very long. So it's necessary, it's important to rest. You have a real need to rest. Think of it like a bow and arrow. As an archer pulls back a bow, there's a moment where they pull back and they stop and there's a rest, isn't there? Before they launch the arrow out towards his target. And I think that's what rest is for us. Rest is the intentional pulling back so that you can be launched forward with effectiveness. So you have a need, and your need is to rest and find your rest in Jesus. The second principle he shows us for effective ministry or serving the Lord is we gotta see their need. So you start by seeing your own need, but then you gotta see their need. In the context of this passage, the disciples are excited for a break. (laughs) Like they're exhausted, they're tired, right? But as soon as they get to the other side, like they've gotten in this boat to go towards rest for a little bit, as soon as they get to the other side, they just see a mob of people. And Mark tells us there was 5,000 men. They didn't count the women and children. And so it's a safe estimate to say there was somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 people on the shore whenever they got there, right? So it's just this crazy amount of people, and you got to imagine that the, the disciples were just thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, he just told us we were coming away to rest, and now there's just this mob of people. It's almost like, get back in the boat, boys. Like, let's go to another spot, you know? In fact, you kind of hear that in their voices in verse 35. It says, when, they, when it grew late, they said, this place is deserted. It's late. We're tired. We're exhausted. Just send the crowd away to the, to the neighboring countryside and villages to go buy some food for themselves. We came here to rest, Jesus, right? That's what they're saying. But Jesus was able to see the need that they had. And in doing so, I think he models for us how we're to live as well. It says, verse 34, it says, Jesus saw them. He saw them, and he had compassion on them. That word compassion, it is, it's an interesting word because it paints a picture of just this gut reaction Basically, it says Jesus felt compassion for them deep in his guts. It's not an intellectual thing. It's not a reasoned response. It's a natural just gut reaction that my natural response is to lean forward in compassion. It's the same word that's used in the story of the prodigal son. remember that story? Where, where Jesus tells this story, and it's a made-up story to prove a point, but Jesus tells a story about this kid who who asks his dad for his inheritance, and he goes away, and he wastes it all on all kinds of things, and he gets to the end of his rope, and he realizes, he says, at my father's house, he has everything that I need. I'll just go back to him and ask him to be one of his servants, right? You remember that story? And and then he he gets up the courage, and he goes back to dad's house, and and the story tells us that the dad has been just kind of sitting and waiting and watching on the front porch every evening for his boy to come home. And as soon as he sees his silhouette coming, Luke chapter 15 verse 20 says, "But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, it's that gut reaction, and he ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. Do you see it? This compassion isn't a, isn't a reasoned? intellectual thing. When Jesus sees these people on the shores, he's not thinking uh, they need a Bible study, and we need to break down the Greek word of this and that. He has a gut reaction to lean in and meet their greatest need. And so for us, it's worth asking, do we see the needs of people? And are we moved with compassion? Are we moved with compassion, for them I told you a couple of weeks ago that people will interrupt your plans like you can take it to the bank and we talked about how people in pain are not to be seen as a disruption to your day but what if instead we saw them as a divine appointment that the Lord is putting in front of you to be the hands and feet of Jesus what if you saw them that way that they have a real need and you're moved by this gut reaction called compassion you ever wondered why Jesus chose 12 people to follow him? Why did he choose the 12? I think it's this. He knew that he came to die for the sins of the world. It was his sole purpose in coming to this earth. He came to die, lay down his life for the sins of the world. And he knew that he was going to need an army of followers that once he was gone, to spread the news. right? And that's exactly what happens. He dies, He raises from the dead. He, he's about to ascend into heaven, and before he does, he commissions his followers and says what? Go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. He's sending out this army of followers, and that's exactly what they go and do. Like, his followers go, and they, they begin to teach people, and they begin to uh, see people coming to know the Lord, and be, being saved and baptized, and the church is born, right? We see this taking place, and then if you fast forward a lot of years, here we set today as an extension of that church with the same exact calling that he placed in front of these 12. To go and make disciples, baptize people, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And so, church, you need to understand that we exist to do and to say all of the things that Jesus said and did and to behave in a way that he would if he was still on this earth. That was the reason for calling the 12 that still exist today. And you also need to know that he does still exist on this earth today through you and me, his church his body he places his spirit inside of you like when you trust jesus as your savior the holy spirit is placed inside of you and not like a great value like cheap knockoff version of the holy spirit it's the same one these dudes had right and so sitting complacent or growing stagnant is not an option it's not an option right Do we see the need? Are we moved with compassion? We've got to feel this compassion for people at the same level of Jesus, just deep in our guts. Our problem is, is we've found that it's way easier just to divert our eyes so that we don't have to see the need, have we? See, it says Jesus saw them, and he was moved with compassion. You and I would rather just not look at it so that we don't have to feel a response. That's what the disciples did. They were worried about all the things that this might cost them. They were worried about their rest that they were gonna miss out on. They were worried about the money that it might cost them. And I think the same happens for us. Our selfishness causes us to bounce our eyes from seeing the need, feeling the compassion, and being drawn to actually help people. We'd rather just not look. But the truth of the matter is, is that just as these people on this hillside had a great need, people all around you have a great need as well. And it's the exact same need. Their need, Jesus identifies it as they are like sheep without a shepherd. That was their need. They were wandering aimlessly. They, they didn't know where to turn, where to go. This, this passage is showing us a lot of things. And one of the things it's showing us is that they're like sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus came to be that shepherd they needed, right? It's a direct tie in this passage to Psalm chapter 23. Did you notice how it said that Jesus told them to go sit on green grass? That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Bible doesn't usually give us colors (laughs) of stuff, but here it specifically says go sit on the green grass. It's a direct tie to Psalm chapter 23, It says what? The Lord is my shepherd. And because of that, I have all that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside the still waters, leads me along paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because the shepherd's with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup, it overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, right? That's the good shepherd. And he's saying, I'm here. In fact, John chapter 10, Jesus explicitly says, I am the good shepherd. They're like sheep without a shepherd, and I've come to be the shepherd that they need. In John chapter 10, he says, this is what the shepherd does. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Jesus knew that was their greatest need. It's not that they needed to eat. It's that they didn't have a shepherd. And that's why he came. He came to be the shepherd who lays down his own life for the sheep. Jesus came to die. I told you that a second ago, that he came to live a life that you and I couldn't. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life. He went to a cross and he died. He laid down his own life for you and me. They put him in a tomb he was dead but three days later he comes walking out of the tomb alive it's crazy but he's proving that he's God proving he has power over sin and death and then he extends an invitation or an offer to every single person on earth to say hey you need a shepherd I'm right here right and then we follow after him but that is the greatest need you need to understand that every single person on earth their greatest need is a shepherd they're wandering lost headed straight for a real place called hell People everywhere need Jesus. Do you and I, as his followers, see the need, and are we moved with compassion deep in our guts for it? So, see your need, see their need. Number three, see past your limitations. See past your limitations. Verse 37, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they respond, they're like, should we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And whenever they found out, they found five loaves and two fish. See, Jesus says, you go feed them. And we see their hesitancy, don't we? We don't have enough money, is what they said. We don't, we don't have enough and it's going to cost a fortune to feed all these people. Have you been out to eat lately, like in a restaurant, and you tried to pay the bill at the end? I've got five in my family, and it is expensive to go eat just with five people, much less feed 20,000 people. And what they say is, it'll take a year's wages to feed all these people. They're, they're speaking in hyperbole. Basically, they're just going, We don't have that kind of money to feed these people. How are we going to do this? And what does Jesus say? What, what do you have? Of course you don't have enough. What do you have, right? John tells us that Jesus asked that question as a test in John chapter 6, verse 6, because he knew what he was going to do. So I imagine Jesus says, what do you have? And he almost has like this smile on his face. You know, what do you have? And they said, we got five loaves of bread and two fish. And John actually tells us that this actually came from a little boy's lunch. In John chapter 6, verse 9. So the point is this. There's no way in the world that these disciples found these five loaves of bread and two fish and had any kind of idea that Jesus was actually going to use that. Right? It doesn't make any logical sense. They, they, there's no way they, that it even crossed their mind that Jesus might use what they had. And I wonder, how many times does that same mindset keep us from serving Christ? Just this idea of, I don't have enough. What I have is, is too little. I don't have enough training. I don't have enough education. I don't have enough experience or influence or, or, or reputation. I don't have enough to do this job. It's basically a feeling of inadequacy, right? And I know that you felt that. I've, I've felt that all along the way on my, my ministry journey, just this feeling of, who am I? Like I'm not enough. I know me better than anybody, and I'm telling you right now, I'm not pastor material. You know, It's just this feeling of, of inadequacy. But I want you to just scan the passage. Does Jesus ever ask them for their credentials? No. He just says, what do you have? And I think it's a point for us to know that Jesus, he's just interested in your faithfulness, not your skills you don't bring anything to the table that's going to impress him. I'll just tell you that, you know. He's just looking for your faithfulness. He's not looking for your resume or your, or your skills. Jesus just wants your faithfulness. And so for us, the same question I think he's asking us, what do you have that you can use for me? Because we'll tell ourselves all the time, I'm not enough. There's, there's got to be somebody who's better for this job than me. And Jesus says, what, what do you have? Use what you've God. Do what you can. So listen, if, if all you can do is stack chairs for the student service and student ministry, I would say volunteer and be the best chair stacker this world has ever seen. You know, if all you can do is just help wrangle kids on Sunday mornings, that's a huge help and we need you. So do it. If all you can do is teach three-year-olds, do that. Our problem is, is we like to just be Fed, we don't like to help feed anybody else, right? We'd rather just sit back and go, man, there's somebody else better for the job. Somebody else is better equipped. But listen, it's all of our job to teach and proclaim about Jesus. It's the Great Commission. You've been called to it. If you're a Christian, you have been called to it. So let me just ask you, who are you teaching? Who are you teaching right now? do you have any faces that are coming to mind right now? And if you don't, I would say, why not? We've got tons of opportunities right here in these walls for you to have that opportunity to teach somebody. Like, this is why I think it's mind-blowing to me that we have to beg people to serve in churches today. Like, do you understand that this is the training ground? This is, you have plenty of opportunity. Just sign up, we'll give you a spot to teach kids or students or small groups. I promise you, if you won't do it here, you're not gonna do it out there. This is the easy spot to do it. And so what I would say is, man, just do what you can. What do you have? Don't tell yourself you're not enough. Don't tell yourself you don't have enough or somebody else is better. What do you have? And give it to Jesus and know that he's gonna use it because that's what we see next. Number four, see the power of Jesus. See the power of Jesus. Look, if we're gonna reach this city and our world we've got to realize that it's only going to happen through the power of Jesus. Everything that's happened before verse 38 in this story was all just stuff that the disciples could do on their own. Just rest in Jesus, just have a little compassion for the people and see them, right? Look past your limitations. But here in verse 39, now Jesus takes over and we see his power in the miracle that he provides. Look, when we faithfully bring Jesus the little that we do have He's going to do a lot with it. That's what you see. It, it reminds me of Ephesians 3:20. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, He's able to take your little and make it a lot. right? Jesus does the work. And so what happens in this story? They bring him the five loaves of bread, the two fish, and Jesus organizes them into little small groups. Of 50 and 100 people it's a, it's a picture of, of what happened in the wilderness he organizes them, he breaks it, he prays this, this prayer for the bread and then he starts to pass it out and he, and he gives it to his disciples and says take this and distribute it to the people I want to be very clear that the miracle in this story is all about Jesus, it's not about the work of the disciples, it's all about Jesus he takes essentially a happy meal and feeds 20,000 people with it <laughs> Like, it's, it's, all, it's all Jesus. But the point for us is bring him what you have and watch him do some Jesus-y stuff with it. Right? That's what you're invited into. It says everyone ate. Everyone was satisfied or full or stuffed. Not just little crumbs. Like, they, they had all that they needed. Showing us that Jesus is the true source of satisfaction that people are craving. And then they go around and they pick up 12 baskets of leftovers. Are you kidding me? 12 baskets of leftovers? This is what makes me think that this story is is more a story about the training of the 12 disciples than it is about feeding 5,000 mouths. Jesus invites them in to this process. He didn't need to do that. He hands them the food and says, now go distribute it. He could have just called down like manna from heaven You know, and it just falls right there in their laps. He didn't need somebody to distribute it. He lets the disciples come along and distribute it out. And then they pick up 12 baskets. How many disciples were there? 12. One for each one of them. Here's what I think is happening. Those baskets of them picking up the leftovers, remembering, I thought we didn't have enough, and then Jesus did whatever he just did. It's a picture. It's a tangible picture of the provision and the power of Jesus to turn a little into a lot. That's what's happening here. And he invites them into the process. How amazing is Jesus? Again, he didn't need them to play a role in the scene, but instead he invites them in and then he blesses their socks off in in the middle of it. Do you realize that you are invited in to the same kind of thing? And if you aren't serving him, if you're not living on mission for him, you're missing out on this. He's got baskets he's ready for you to pick up as a tangible reminder of his goodness and his power and his provision. And you're just missing out on it. Because you'd rather just sit and be fed instead of helping to serve alongside of Jesus. Do you realize you're invited in? And is that how you see The thing that Jesus has called you into? Is that how you approach the idea of sharing your faith, or serving here in the church, or caring for the person in your small group who's hurting? Is this how you see it? Of what a privilege it is that he's calling me in to be a part of this with him? So in John's account of this moment, of this scene, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. In John chapter 6, verse 35. He's trying to teach them, like, look, you didn't need real bread. You actually need me. I'm the bread of life. If you fast forward from this scene to the night of Jesus' betrayal, right before he's crucified, he shares a meal with these 12 guys again. And in this meal, he takes a piece of bread and he uses it as an object lesson. He breaks it and he says, this is my body. He's talking about how the very next day He'd be crucified And His body would be broken for us Again, He's a good shepherd Who lays down His life for the sheep And then He's gonna Die He's gonna be put in a tomb, He's gonna come out He's gonna ascend into heaven And and He's going to tell His followers Go into all the world, make disciples Take this bread that I'm giving you And distribute it It's almost like the feeding of the 5,000 is a picture of the purpose of our lives isn't it that jesus his body the bread is broken for us and we're given a peace but we don't just hold on to that for ourselves we take it and we distribute it out to a world that's hungry and jesus multiplies it and a world that was hungry is made completely satisfied in him so the invitation is for you as a Christ follower to know that God is inviting you in to his mission and his work. And the encouragement is just bring him what you've got and then watch him do a lot of Jesus-y stuff with it. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family.